Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation for any of the funds, services, or products or to adopt any investment strategy. Hi everyone, we have Joe Sweeney, a fellow Westchester, Pennsylvanian, and the Executive Director of the Alliance for Decision Education on the podcast this week. He originally started off in software during the dot-com era, but quickly found his true passion for education afterwards. Since then, he's been working on improving how students are taught, especially on how to make decisions from pre-K all the way through the end of high school. Joe is dedicated to making better lives through better decisions, and the Alliance for Decision Education creates programs to teach these skills to children. Other members of the Alliance include some TVP faves like Daniel Kahneman, Michael Mobosson, Ted Seitz, and Annie Duke. Andy Evans and Juan Torres sit with Joe to discuss how the Alliance was started, how they use data and academic research to refine their educational programs, what results the students, parents, and teachers see after implementing decision-making education, and how to teach decision-making in an age-appropriate and digestible manner. Enjoy. Joe Sweeney, welcome to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Juan. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Hi, Andrew. Hi there. Welcome to the show, Joe. Lovely to have you here. So, uh, Joe, um, would you mind giving us a little bit of background about yourself? Um, what has been your journey and how you ended up uh, being or feeling passionate about the topic of decision making? Uh, sure. I'll try to do the abbreviated version for you. And then if there's something you want to ask about, feel free. But I started my first career back in the 90s in the software industry during the dot-com era, which was a blast. Uh, right out of college, started programming, project managing, tried a few startups. It was great. Um, and then uh, after 9-11, um, I took a look at my life and um, all the blessings I had received from uh, the freedoms that we enjoy and from the society that I had inherited and thought, uh, I really haven't done much from my point of view to contribute to the sustaining of that to make sure that it's here for the next generation. And I thought a lot about what to do and decided um, I would take off for two years and teach. And um, it was fantastic. Uh, a great, a great moment in life. I'm not sure it was a good decision process yet. I didn't know much about that yet, um, but it, but it was a wonderful experience. And two, two big things hit me by doing that. One was that I loved teaching. Uh, I really enjoyed watching the spark of curiosity come alive in a young person and to see them making connections and understandings and thinking about what was possible for their life. So I loved that. And the second thing I learned was it sure hadn't changed much since we were in school. Uh, So much of the education system is still um, based around an old model with content that is focused on something unrelated for the most part to preparing young people for life. That really hit me. So 
what I started trying to do was find ways to improve how we were teaching, sure, but also what we were teaching. So introducing the things I knew, computer science, programming, some um, statistics and probability. And then one school that I went to work at, so I stayed in education. I, I really liked it. And I, I stuck around for a while. <clears throat> and one school I went to work at as the chair of the math department, part of their orientation for every teacher coming into the school was to train them on decision sciences. And it struck me that um, by that point, I had done an under, undergraduate degree in natural science and liberal arts and two master's degrees, one in math and one in economics. And in none of those had I ever formally studied decision-making. And here was an orientation and preparation program for high school and middle school teachers uh, to skill them up on decision-making so that they could be good guides and coaches to developing the decision-making of the students at that private school. And um, that was a big change for me because what I saw in that school were students who were empowered to think of themselves as decision makers, to see that they had agency in their lives and that there were skills that they could develop and improve on that would make them better decision makers. Um, so they, they ran things like the entire discipline system was run by the students uh, using reflection processes and, um, and using a, a structured decision-making cycle to talk about, okay, what was, the, what was the frame you were using when you were making or poorly making this decision? What were the values you were considering? What were the trade-offs? What were the consequences? What alternatives did you consider? Um, it was the same kind of conversation that they had when they talked with their college counselors about what are you going to do after high school here? It was the same kind of question they, conversations they had with their coaches about um, how they were performing in their athletics program or what position they wanted to play or whether they wanted to continue to invest in that area or focus on another area um, of their development. And the school made a point of trying to get parents to think this way. Anyway, <clears throat> that was that was a big, a what, big what, change. What for me. Age Go ahead. Were the, what, what age uh, were you, what, what age were these uh, students at when you were, uh, or were they were kind of thinking about this or taking over uh, this program? Yeah. Uh, good question. So the, the school was uh, pre-K, so it's four years old on the side cool. of the Atlantic, up to uh, seniors in high school. Um, and all the teachers were trained on this. Um, and the students focused on different aspects of it all the way through elementary, middle, and high school. Um, yeah, it was, it was really something. And what turned out was that there were a couple of parents at the school who had focused on decision-making in their own business work in their own, they were um, traders, options traders, and they wanted this for their students or their kids and for all the kids in the school. And so they had sponsored bringing in a group to train all the teachers uh, on it. Um, anyway, that's, that's how I got first introduced to the idea that there even was a field of decision-making and that it was possible to bring those insights from decision sciences behavioral economics, uh, decision analysis, neuroscience, cognitive psychology, to bring those, those findings from the last 30 and 40 years into K-12 education. So when, when one of those parents co-founded the Alliance for Decision Education, they asked me to be on the advisory council, and I said yes. That's how, we got, that's how I got involved. And, and what exactly is the Alliance for Decision Education? 
Well, thanks, Juan. The Alliance for Decision Education is an educational nonprofit uh, dedicated to the understanding that better decisions lead to better lives and a better society. And what we are focused on doing is bringing decision education to students in the K-12 system across the country. So it's a, a big, ambitious project. It's got two big sides to it. One is creating awareness and demand in society so that people know about value and think that education should focus on decision-making. And the other side is solutions, discovery, and scaling. How do we actually make that happen? What are the interventions that will move the needle on the things we care about, whether it's learning how to structure a decision, recognizing resisting cognitive biases, thinking probabilistically, or just valuing and pursuing rationality, you know, any, any of those areas. So that's, that's what the Alliance is doing. Uh, the advisory council is substantially better than it was when Joe Sweeney joined. Uh, now it's got luminaries on it, like uh, Daniel Kahneman and um, Paul Slovic and uh, Barbara Mellers. And um, I think that by the time this podcast come out, comes out, we'll have uh, Richard Thaler announced end up on the advisory council, the author of Nudge and also a Nobel laureate. Um, so the advisory council has substantially improved. And I came in-house and started... Uh, serving as the executive director a few years ago, uh, and the team has grown dramatically since. So now we're a team of about 25 educators, communicators, fundraisers, et cetera, out there trying to build the community that's going to make this happen for kids across the country. That's an amazing who's who on the decision-making uh, side yeah. of things. Um, how easy is it to kind of demonstrate the benefits of, of these programs, or is there any way of quantifying when you take uh, kids through these these programs, that there's a, a tangible benefit at the end of it. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, we talk a lot about okay, it's one thing to be able to recite back that you know these skills. How do we measure for it? So I don't know if if you're familiar with uh, Keith Stanovich and uh, Maggie Toplack's work on rationality quotient. So familiar? If not, it's a fan, it's fascinating work. Uh, Keith's the author of the book, The Robot's Rebellion, which I highly recommend. Um, anyway, uh, Maggie and Keith build an instrument called the Rationality Quotient, which measures a lot of the skills that we're interested in, but it's like most research in this area, it's for adults. So we've been working with Maggie to develop a CART Y, a Comprehensive Assessment of Rational Thinking for Youth, and to benchmark that with partner schools um, so that we have instruments for which, which we can use to measure some of this. Some of our programs, we collect and have collected uh, data, which is useful. We ran, a, we ran a fun program that your listeners might find interesting uh, a few years ago called GM Genius. This is an experiment to try to go to kids directly in an area where they had um, intrinsic motivation about learning these skills. One of the important areas of becoming a good, a good decision maker is getting good at making predictions about what's going to happen. What are the possible ways the future could unfold? So we thought, all right, what's something where kids make predictions where we can teach them some of these skills. And we settled on fantasy football. So we built the first ever learning platform based on fantasy football, uh, created a college scholarship competition out of it. So the kids could win money for college. We had about 60,000 kids play the first year and got to see that, um, from the empirical data uh, that they were improving in their decision-making and their predictions. Each week they watched an animated video about some area of 
forecasting, a lot of it based on Phil Tetlock and Barbara Mello's, Miller's work, uh, Super Forecasting, Good Judgment Project. Um, sorry, the Good Judgment Project. Uh, anyway, they were getting better at their predictions. We could see that in the game data and the, the game mechanics. Um, but we were also hearing from them anecdotally, hey, I'm using this in other areas of my life. So that was that was one way that we collected data about this. Um, every program that we support or try, we are thinking about how do we gather data. And now we're building a research agenda. We're going to start uh, issuing grants uh, to researchers who are interested in looking at decision education. And that's both short-term, which interventions work, and also longitudinal studies. How's this impact their life overall? Uh, there's, a, there's plenty more to talk about in there, but I imagine you have other questions. Um, what has been the um, the reception when you guys try to approach whoever is in charge of the design of the curriculum that goes into the K twelve uh, program? Yeah, um, you know we, we've taken some bruises in that regard. Um, this is not what school is currently set up in the U.S. at least to focus on, and so uh, it's important that people see it not as competitive to things they're already teaching or requiring that we, that we replace something, take something else out of the curriculum. Uh, it's important that they see that it can be woven in and throughout the entire teaching and learning experience. So for the most part, any teacher who's gotten involved in any way with this effort has found it to be dramatically um, improvement of their students' engagement. Things like... Um, Classroom behavior improve, uh, tardiness goes down, absenteeism goes down. Uh, we were very surprised to see uh, reading scores went up. That wasn't something that we were expecting. Um, so the the teachers are once they once they work with decision education are incredibly receptive and excited about it. Some of the principals or school building leaders are also similarly excited about it, but we've got a pretty bad turnover rate in the U.S. with regard to school leaders. Um, so as each one goes out, there's this you know, challenge that the programs will be dropped by the next person who comes in, which is part of why we need to have this become a systemic uh, change for the entire K-12 system in all 50 states. Um, parents love it, obviously. That's not a big surprise. Uh, yeah, I'm a parent. I don't know if either of you are, but to think that your kids are going to become better decision makers is one of the main things that you want out of um, their maturation. So uh, huge receptivity there. Uh, yeah. We, we had um, Rob Garner as a guest on the pod, and Rob Garner is a very senior member of a large financial services company here in the UK, but he's also very passionate about financial education for children. And one thing, one of the things that he was saying is that when it comes to embed some concepts into children, you need to do it at a very early age. And when it comes to financial education, uh, he read some research that pointed out that you actually need to start addressing some of these concepts when they are as young as seven. Would you agree with, with that statement on other regards of the, um, when it comes to other decision education tools? Yes, but uh, it's tricky. You, you have to, to approach all learning in developmentally appropriate ways. So the concepts that you can bring in, think about probabilistic thinking for a moment. 
right? We wouldn't talk to seven-year-olds about being good Bayesians and uh, about thinking in expected value terms, but we could talk to them about maybe, uh, not thinking always in yes and no, but maybe and gray. And what's another way that things could turn out and playing simple games with them with dice and things to start to see that um, chance plays a role and just um, unpacking for them the reality that there are more ways for the future to unfold than ways that it will unfold. And that we have to take that into account when we're thinking about whether to bring the umbrella or not, you know, uh, that just bringing it doesn't mean that it's going to rain and not bringing it means doesn't mean that it will. Uh, we've, we've got to handle the, the chance part of life. So yes, uh, you do need to start steeping people early in the dispositions and thinking skills. And you want to pursue something called graduated autonomy. So as a person develops their level of agency and their authority over their own life and their decisions should match the level of responsibility that they have for it. And that's very different for a seven-year-old versus a 13-year-old versus an 18-year-old. Um, the other problem is something called proximal learning. Um, the, you don't want to introduce concepts that are not going to be used at all by the person, either in connection with other learning or in their out-of-school time life because then they just drop it. Think about the, the number of things that you learned in school along the way that you never used, uh, never thought about again, and are just gone. And so all of that is to a large degree wasted time. We shouldn't be focusing on things that students aren't going to use yet because they'll largely lose it. And there's so much that is available to teach them that, um, that they can use right away, whether it's in their academic work, their co-curricular work, or just in their life in general. It's really interesting. The Lens for Education um, organization has a podcast which also tries to cater to decision-making and learn from very elite uh, individuals how they prepare themselves to make better decisions and how the mental process work and the different tools that they use. And this podcast is about decision-making under uncertainty, and it pursues pretty much the same objective. I think that it's not unusual for both podcasts to be very similar, given that the original, the inception of our podcast came after having a session with Annie Duke more than two years ago, which was never supposed to be a podcast. It was supposed to be a, an interview for our blog. And then after the session with her, we thought, you know what, like we just interviewed this amazing person which with great ideas. Uh, she used to be a former world poker player and what can what else can we learn from other people's other people that are, that are outside of finance in our walks of life? And so, given that, what's the uh, idea, concept, or experience that has had a greater impact in you from the many people that uh, you've have had as a guest on your show? Yeah. Okay. So that's a fun question. Uh, first, I should mention and thank Annie. Annie's one of the co-founders of the Alliance, uh, and. Um, is I think possibly the best communicator and translator around decision science uh, that I, certainly that I know of. Uh, her book Thinking in Bets was uh, was transformative for the whole field. I think it woke a lot of people up to the importance and tractability of learning about decision making. Um, anyway, yeah. So I, I also made the mistake of having Annie early on my podcast and thinking this is fantastic. 
you know, these guests are amazing. Uh, and he's kind of special in that regard. Like, it's like, that's not the, uh, that's not going to be the median experience, but because of Annie being on the podcast and uh, the, the great connection she has and following she has, we've, we've been hugely fortunate with who's come on our podcast, especially for a little nonprofit. It's been ridiculous. Uh, um, just a, just a wealth of insights. So I think Michael Mobison was also on, on your podcast, right? Uh, and I'm, I'm Oh yeah. And Maria. Nice. Nice. I don't think, uh, Maria hasn't. Oh yeah. Uh, I yeah, think she was that, yeah, she was. On... Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, so if I didn't already know Annie and if I didn't already have access to her book and have been talking with her for several years, I, I imagine that some of those insights from the conversation with her would have been transformative ones for me. Um, but I'll tell you the, the one, the one that really hit me was a conversation with Lee failing. Um, uh, Lee is a decision facilitator, consultant, strategist, um, scientist working up in Canada. And she brought to the foreground, the idea of participatory decision-making multi-stakeholder decision-making. And up until then, I and most of the people who had been working on bringing decision-making into K-12 had really been thinking about it from individual empowerment. We were trying to give each individual decision-maker a set of skills. And Lee really challenged us on that, both from a learning outcome point of view, what are we doing this for, and what's going to be the big benefit from it, and from a pedagogy point of view. Uh, how is this going to show up inside the classrooms? What's going to be the most effective way to get buy-in um, from teachers and from uh, educational leaders across the country. And that really pushed me. That made me think a lot about um, how much of our programming standards efforts should be around empowering the individual as an individual decision maker where they've got the majority of the control over their decision process and how much of it should be about what do you do when you're engaging in a multi-stakeholder decision whether that's a club at school or it's a civic organization or it's as a society, as we make big decisions about life um, or in a dyad and a couple and trying to think about decisions around things like family and relationship. Um, so I, I think while I've learned a lot from our podcast, that was the one that knocked me sideways the most. It's kind of interesting because we're actually going to ask you about that, that podcast a little bit oh, later yeah. on, but maybe, maybe we'll bring that forward because in the same way, so much of what we've been talking about has been very much focused on the individual. And as you say, the, the Lee Failing one really opened another avenue to, to decision making. So maybe you could go into a bit more detail just in terms of you know, what, what you've learned after exploring that avenue of, of joint and, and participatory decision making, as opposed to kind of individual things focusing on probabilistic thinking or uh, base rates, et cetera. Right. Um, happy to. Uh, I also think that Lee does a much better job than I ever will of describing it. So either folks should check out that episode of our podcast, or maybe we can get Lee to come on yours um, or both. Um, so I think the story that Lee shared was about, um, was about water rights and, and about how a company, uh, a local community, 
and indigenous people were all thinking about access to this body of water, um, how it would be used, what the impacts would be, and even what it was, what it meant to them. And the takeaway were many for me from that conversation. One was um, structuring a decision process is different when you've got multiple stakeholders. There, there's a there's a there's a need for active listening that's different. There's a facilitation requirement that's different. Um, there's a there's a conversation about trade offs and values that's a that's different than when you think about trade offs for yourself. When when you think about structuring your decision for yourself, of course you're thinking about what are the different values I'm trying to serve here? What are the preferences I have or the criteria? And then what are the trade-offs of each of these alternatives relative to those? It's quite a different thing when some of the values mean more to you and they mean something different to Juan or something different to Joe. So it, um, it requires much more work at the beginning about framing and thinking about what is the problem or decision that we're trying to make and who has a voice in it and how are we going to bring those voices forward? Um, who gets to have final authority over it? There, there were just so many pieces that, uh, that you really, you, you just need to, to reflect on and think about good facilitation, honoring the dignity of the other people that are involved. Lee does a great job describing all that and then um, you know, pulling together a story about the whole thing, which is just, uh, part of the charm, I think, is, you know, we, we learned in stories. So she does a really good job with that. I was thinking about this not too long ago and thinking, you know, it's, if you were trying to communicate this to a little kid, how might you talk about it? You know, um, and the idea of a tree for some, I probably was taking a walk. So it hit me. The idea of a tree hit me though. I thought like, you know, you see that tree there, like different people think of that tree in different ways. They, they value it differently and the decisions about what to do with that tree are pretty different. A farmer might see it as you know shade during a hot day or a thing that holds the soil in place. A, a, a furniture maker might see it as potential lumber and you know wood uh, of a high quality that they could use to make furniture. Kids might see it as a plaything, a place to gather, a place to play. Uh, an artist might see it as a focal point for a painting or a song or a poem. Uh, and it means because it means different things to different people, they're going to have very different expectations about what kind of decisions could be made about what to do with that tree. Uh, are we going to try to care it and care for it and sustain it? Are we going to cut it up and use it? Are we, you know, what's going to happen with it? And if you can just imagine, it'd be hard enough for one person to decide whether to cut down that tree and use it or not uh, for lumber. But now you've got a few people that have different needs out of it. And Young, a young kid can understand that pretty well. Um, yeah. Yeah, re re really interesting. No, thank you. And uh, yeah, would definitely recommend uh, Lee's podcast that you did with her. I think it was your second one um, in, in your series. Um, just coming back to, uh, you know, the high school kids and um, decision education programs. Uh, what one thing we come up again time and again is that it's quite easy to talk about you know, behavioral biases and identifying them, but it's a mm -hmm. lot harder to implement and overcome them. You know, it's, it's something we, 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 we're all aware of them, but we, we find it very hard, whether it be the fact that probabilistic thinking is not an easy thing to put in day to day or, you know, finding base rates and thinking about them at the right time. So how, how do you go about encoding in kids the ability to not only identify these things, but also to 
be able to have the tools to implement them and be able to do it at the right time? That's such a good question. So, uh, so my my strength in teaching is really with teenagers. That's what I spend most of my time doing. When I was doing it. So I'll mention my personal experience, and I'll go broader to how the alliance is approaching it. So my personal experience is teenagers have a superpower, and and that is recognizing the failings in someone else's thinking. <laughs> you know, they they can spot uh, they, they can spot someone else falling for a bias pretty easily. They can see when it's happening, whether it's a friend of theirs or a, a, just a classmate um, or a teacher, better yet, a parent. So if you if you begin by exposing them to the, the possibility that people are falling for cognitive biases, that the, these traps, these in our thinking, these errors, these systematic errors in the ways that we process information, if you start there and then ask them just to notice them. They'll notice them in media. They'll notice them in the decisions that administrators at the schools are making. They'll notice them in the things that their classmates or peers are making. And that's a good start. Uh, so, so that's one. Um, it's an easy pedagogical move. Just get them to start noticing. right? So from the Alliance's broader effort, one of the things that we're really focused on, as I mentioned, is discovering and scaling solutions. The question is, how do you go about doing that as an education movement? And what we settled on was building a community of educators, going to the professionals, the teachers, and saying, we know these skills are important. We know these dispositions are important. How do you imagine they might show up? And we created a program called the Decision Education Fellows. And we got together a cohort the first year, and then we just had our second cohort join. They go through about 10 weeks of training on decision sciences. And they work with our education team to think about their core subject area, English, math, social studies, science, and how, how might these skills show up inside of your classroom? Uh, and they work on developing a unit or a lesson that brings in one or more areas of decision science into their core curriculum. And then they share out that lesson or unit to other teachers. And so what we're trying to do with that is find the places where the opportunities exist for interventions without having to replace whole sections or add another class uh, to the daily schedule. So I'd love to say, oh, we know, here's the list of things, but it's actually, we're building a community of educators to help us discover the ways to bring decision education into schools. I think that's the appropriate way to go. These are the people who are responsible for preparing the next generation. And they have the expertise about what works with kids at different ages and different levels of development. They should be the ones who are helping us figure this out and leading the um, the charge. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, by the way, I, I don't think it's just uh, teenagers who are far better identifying biases than other people. We're, we're, we're all guilty of that. Far easier Fair to enough. see it in other people than ourselves. Um, I, I guess there's a, a kind of follow-on. Is, is there one area which is particularly hard to get across? You know, I, I think things like probabilistic thinking, it's... I think there's lots of adults who don't um, who struggle with really getting their head around that concept. So, is there something which um, you found particularly hard to get uh, through to kids? Yeah, but to your point, I don't think it's just kids. I th uh, the one that that strikes me as the hardest, and you don't see it in much of the literature yet, or at least not in much of what I've read yet, is um, that feeling right and being right are not necessarily correlated. 
that we can have very strong feelings about our opinions and about the rightness of our facts and our analysis. And you, it can really feel like you're right and you're just not. And that's just hard to get around uh, that um, you, you have to discount the feeling of certitude and, um, and even start to just pay attention to when it shows up. Oh, I think I'm right here. Well, okay. You don't think you're right. You feel you're right. And set that aside for a moment. Um, now let's examine, you know, the actual arguments pro and con for your, your position. That's really, I think, very hard because, um, because it just feels the other way. And we, we, we are largely driven by our feelings, by our emotive experience. I think that's probably the hardest. You can think about things like overconfidence, temporal discounting, you know, present bias. Um, those are, those are huge and hard to resist. Um, overconfidence, uh, is the one that Danny Kahneman would point to as the number one and hardest. Um, and, and he's probably right. Uh, he's certainly a lot smarter and more knowledgeable than me about all these, but the one that I find is really hard for people is, but I feel right. Yeah. That doesn't cut it. Yeah. And everyone loves being right as well, or love feeling they're right. <laughs> yes. Um, let's turn it turn it around another way and say, what do you think the um, the best things that you could kind of give kids? What well, if you had a magic wand and there were one or two things that you could implant in in each of the kids who go through the program? What, yeah. what do you think the most important ones would be? Well, that's a fun question, um, and I think you'd get lots of different answers from lots of really informed people on it. Um, for me, I think it would be a couple of things. One, if I could wave a wand, I'd have kids realize um, that they have agency, that decisions are real things, that they should be seeking them out as opportunities to improve their lives, um, identifying when they show up uh, and treating them as um, ways of pulling different futures into the present. That, um, that, that that exists. So that, that's the big one. Like, can you even know that decisions are a thing that matters and that you can do something about and that you should be looking for them? So that's, that's a big one. Uh, another one would be um, to, to value rationality. And I mean that in Stanovich and Toplex way, in the two parts, epistemic and instrumental. So epistemic is seeing the world more accurately, valuing that, like truth-seeking over being right. And instrumental would be behaving in ways that are consistent with your goals, your values. Um, and by those values, I mean your second order values, the ones that you want to have, not necessarily how you feel in the moment. Um, so I, I think that those would be the biggest. Some people would argue, no, if you, if you get them to think probabilistically, you're there. Like that's the, that's the, golden, uh, the golden ticket, the silver bullet whatever other metal you want to describe. That's the one that if you could get them to, you know, think probabilistically you're there, but I think it really starts with, um, do you see yourself as the author of your life? And if you do, how, do, how, or at least the co-author, how are you going about that? Well, it's through the decisions that you're making. It's through the judgments that you're forming. Okay. Well, what, what approach are you going to take to making those decisions? Are you just going to go with your gut? Or are you actually going to try to get good at this? Uh, nobody would go and play, I was going to say baseball, but I'm not sure that's 
good for your audience cricket, I guess. Uh, nobody would go and play that for the first time and think that that's the best that they could get at it. They would, they would try to practice the skills and get better. Uh, well, if decision-making is the way that you author your life, then you would think you'd want to get good at it. And if we could get that into kids' heads, I think the whole game changes. We recently listened to the interview Annie had with Michael Lombardi, and they at some point touched upon the importance of narrative within sports. And it also happened that we had also quite recently on our show uh, a guy called Simon Hallett, who is the owner of a football team here in uh, England called Plymouth Argyle. I hope that I have pronounced that correctly. And he used to be an investor, but he, he was a fund manager for 20, for 20 years. So it was quite interesting for us as investors to lessen his experience transitioning from the asset management industry into owning a football club. And what's quite interesting is that he's quite passionate about behavioral biases and decision-making. And he is trying uh, to implement many or, or, or bring many of the tools of, of decision-making and, and behavioral into how he managed the, the football team. And uh, the topic about narratives came across uh, because we were saying that in the world of investing, narratives can be very useful, but they're also very tricky and one should be very careful around them. And you need to put behavioral tools in place to see through them when needed and not get carried away. But in the world of sports, they are so important. And I, I thought that was quite a fascinating topic uh, given where the world is at the moment with social media and narratives uh, that are taking over. And, and how important they are to differentiate reality from fake or get carried away by the story behind the trend or event. So I wanted to ask you, what were your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, that's a big, that's a big topic. Thanks. Um, so first, I actually know Simon. Uh, I've met Simon a little less than maybe a year ago. Uh, delighted to get to know him. And he's become a, a big supporter and champion of decision education. He actually had me up to his uh, investment firm, Harding Lovner in New Jersey, to speak recently. Uh, they have a, a university program where they bring all their employees in to learn about a topic, you know, cryptocurrency, investing in Asia, et cetera, and very generously offered an opportunity for me to come speak uh, to them about decision education and this, this movement to bring decision skills to K-12 learning. Um, so huge fan of Simon's, um, also though, I, I got to see a little bit behind the curtain about what they do at Harding Lovner and how they keep track of everyone's decisions in the organization and score them, uh, and, and focus relentlessly on decision quality. It's fascinating. So if he's bringing that, uh, to his football league, uh, team, uh, good luck to the others. Uh, it, it's going to really, <laughs> it's going to be a differentiator. Anyway, uh, to the idea of narrative, I don't know. I I might be too mathy a thinker or abstract a thinker in this regard, but I sometimes picture in my head, imagine you had four or five dots in a two-dimensional space, just, just a flat blank space and a couple, you know, a few dots on a paper. Maybe that's a way to think of it for those who are trying to visualize this. And to me, one question is, okay, where's the next dot going to appear? right? That's one kind of question. That's about prediction. But there's another question, which is how do these dots connect to each other? And someone could draw a figure connecting those uh, dots just with straight lines, just, just as a perimeter and, and outline a shape. 
another person might look at those dots and use them as um, points to create an intersection of lines between the dots. Another person might see those and just draw a, a giant smiley face with curved arcs around those dots. And to me, those are the narratives. Those are the stories about the dots. Those are the stories about the facts, using the facts. Um, none of those stories is particularly good at predicting where the next dot is going to show up. If you don't understand the causal relationships behind why are these dots here? Why did the ones that exist already exist? What are the constraints? You know, if, if you don't have a mental model for that, and I think we can sometimes get confused about which activity are we in. Are we in a space where the interesting and important thing is connecting these dots and telling a good story about them? Or is the interesting and important thing making a prediction about where the next, next dot is going to show up? And so when, it, when you bring it over to sports, if you're a decision maker inside of sports and you're thinking about the next play to call, it's funny, but it seems like both pieces of work show up. On the one hand, you want to make a good prediction about how the play is going to go. If you make this call versus that call, what's going to happen? What's the likelihood of each thing happening and, and what's the, the expected value? But you also have the entire narrative around sporting, about people's passion for a team, about the following uh, uh, and the identification with, with that organization. And that requires them believing in or participating in a narrative and in a story. That's, you know, um, so I, I think that sports managers have a particularly hard role, probably, probably a little harder in one way than investment managers in that they've got to be telling a story to a very big public audience all the time about what their decisions were for and how they related to, um, to the identity of the team that someone's become associated with. Yeah, that's, it's, that's a tricky one. Anyway, that's, that's how I think of it. Thanks, Joe. Um, I, we're getting close to the signature questions, but I did have one, one more, which is I'm going to ask you to do something, which is to paint the most optimistic picture if you were successful at the alliance of getting decision education on, on the curriculum in, in the US. So what, what does that look like? Does it look like for a society in terms of benefits, is it lower prison rates? Is it kind of a, a society which is more able to deal with misinformation, et cetera? Look, just paint a very optimistic picture of, of how good, what good looks like if you were successful. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. And it gets a little overwhelming when you start to actually appreciate the magnitude of this thing. And the responsibility sometimes feels like, oh my goodness, thank good. I'm really glad that not only is there a great team uh, behind this effort, but that there's a growing community behind it because it can't be, any individual's goal. It's just so big. But imagine for a moment any issue that you care about, whether it's homelessness, the environment, um, innovation, uh, raising living standards, reducing child abuse. I mean, you pick your topic, whatever, whatever matters to you. Uh, and it doesn't have to be as dire as homelessness or the next vaccine or genetic engineering or artificial intelligence and its implications for people's ability to work and support themselves or what it could mean for future discovery. But whatever, whatever area of life you're interested in, there are decisions being made. And the quality of those decisions is the thing that we have control over. We don't have control over chance, but we do have control over the quality of our decisions. And if you could improve 
decision-making a little bit, let's say 5% from where it is right now, overall, if, if that's all we could do, imagine the impact of that. It's absolutely enormous. Everything that we care about gets better. So those are the stakes. Now, how much can we improve decision-making and how much does an improvement in decision-making affect outcomes in whatever area you're interested in? That's, that's a, a huge body of research for us to investigate. That's a big thing for us to unpack. But if you go to sports or poker or trading or any area of life where you can see the feedback loop on decision quality and how it affects outcomes, you can see that decision quality matters a lot. It matters a lot. And so if it matters a lot in the domains that we already know about, you know, we, we just recently had a new board member, uh, Jan Tai. She's a vice, retired vice admiral of the U.S. Navy, first woman ever to command a fleet in the U.S. Navy, head of U.S. Naval Intelligence. And uh, she joined our board saying this is an issue of national security that we get better at decision making. So whether it's national security and geopolitics or it's poverty reduction or it's improving um, health outcomes, uh, decision process, decision quality, reducing, recognizing, reducing cognitive biases, um, we can anticipate that they're going to have dramatic effects in all those areas. So it, it's, I don't have good measurements for it, but I, I'll paint the rosy picture of the minimus, the minimal. If we just did a little, it'd be a huge impact. And I don't know how big it could be. It sounds like a fantastic project and you know, all, all the very best uh, to you, Joe, and, and, and the rest of the Alliance. Um, again, that into the education system. Um, on to our, our signature question. So the first one, we, we give you a nice optimistic chance. Now, now it's a pessimistic chance. So we want you to tell us about um, a decision where the outcome, not necessarily the outcome, but the, the actual um, result was very poor from a decision-making perspective. <laughs> well, sadly, there in my life, I'm assuming you mean, uh, there have been more than one. Uh, but the one that jumps to mind because we, we try to work with young people about this one is my, um, my decision about college and my college major. Um, I ended up being a physics major in college. And the way that happened was one day my, uh, my father was walking in the door as I was filling out my application to college. And I got down to the word major and I didn't know what a major was yet. Like I, we had never had that conversation. And I said to my dad, uh, what should I put down for major? And he says, well, uh, what do you like? And I thought, well, among the subjects that I'm currently taking, I like physics. He said, well, put down physics. So that's how I became a physics major. And when I think about that as a decision process, it was terrible. The outcome was good. Uh, physics is a fascinating area of study, and it, and it combines math and uh, philosophy in some fun ways for me. I found it enjoyable. Um but it was a terrible process. That's not how anyone should be making a decision about what to study for four years. Good grief. So there's an easy example. Very good. Thank you. Um, and I, I know from your podcast and listening to it that uh, you, you're a very well-read uh, person. Is there a book? I know you mentioned Robot Rebellion earlier on in the in the podcast. Are there any other books you recommend to listeners? Uh, you know, there's one I'm, I'm re-listening to. I've started using Audible, which is a lot of fun. I mostly read... Uh, books in paper form, but um, I'm re-listening to uh, Ryan Bush's uh, Designing the Mind. Uh, I think it's called, a, the subtitle might be A Psychotext Guide. 
fascinating, really fun, very practical. Uh, I think your readers would enjoy it. I'm sorry, your listeners would enjoy reading it quite a bit. So uh, that one jumps out. I, I'm not going to mention so many of the others that are already familiar because you have the guests on. You already, I've heard that you, you know you, you've had them announcing good books that everyone should read, like Thinking in Bets and Thinking Fast and Slow and Skill versus Luck. And, you know, just psychology of money. When you just run down the list. Um, but that one I haven't heard people talking about yet, and I think it's a great book, Designing the Mind. Brilliant. No, thank you very much um, for that recommendation. And, and thanks so much for uh, for joining us on the show. That's been really interesting. Thank you. It was a real treat. Thank you very much for helping us get the word out about decision education and the Alliance. I really appreciate it. And thank again, very much. good luck. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.